You're listening to COSAM Talks, the monthly podcast for Auburn University's College of Sciences and Mathematics. Thank you for listening to COSAM Talks. This is our first episode for 2021, and we're trying to do something a little bit different this time. We're, we're trying to offer this podcast episode as both a, an audio podcast and video podcast. So you should be able to listen to this the same way you have been if you want to, or we'll have the video version posted up on YouTube. So today's guest is Dr. Bob Boyd, the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the College of Sciences and Mathematics. So how are you today, Dr. Boyd? I'm good, Philip. Thank you very much. It's nice to be able to talk to you this morning. It's, not, it's nice to actually be in, the, in somebody else's presence. Face-to-face, but distance. Correct, correct. Yeah. yeah, not over Zoom. Right, yeah. We Zoom a lot nowadays. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so just to get things started, you've been at Auburn for over three decades now. How have you seen things change during that time? So to be precise, it's been 32 years, and of course that's a long time. So back in the late 1980s when I arrived, uh, you'd be able to drive through campus on the major roads that crossed. You could drive right by Haley Center and all mm. the major. So it was, it's been quite a change to see the campus closed to traffic and to have it become a lot more pedestrian and bike friendly. And I think the... Uh, powers that be have done a great job in terms of uh, the architecture and the way they've matched everything with the brick buildings and so the campus is a lot more visually pleasing now than it was back then mm-hmm. it's a lot more pedestrian friendly and uh, it's it's a really awesome place to be uh, able to visit and work so yeah. I like the way that it's changed I, I can remember just being able to drive around Haley and the parking lot that used to be where the student center is and being able to drive down Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah all yeah. those changes. And that's just in the, you know, 15 years I've been here, or more like well, a few more than that now with my time as a student, but that's just in that time. Yeah. Campus has changed a lot, but I think it's changed in good directions. So. It has. Yeah. It has. So during a large portion, or presumably still now, you've been teaching here at Auburn. Uh, spending a lot of time teaching. And back in 2016, uh, you were awarded the Gerald and Emily Leeschuk Endowed Presidential Award for Excellence in Teaching, one of the longest names that I think (laughs) I have read for an award. Um, So how did you feel about getting that? That was great. Um, So so it turns out that's uh, Auburn's premier award for teaching, and so, you know, getting that top award was just a wonderful... Um, I guess it's a validation of the effort I put into teaching because I put a lot of effort into that. Um, I felt very grateful, of course, to the nominator and to all the people who wrote letters uh, to uh, support that nomination for that award. And uh, I I mentioned that that award actually followed up uh, being an alumni teaching award recipient. And uh, I mentioned that simply because I was able to bring in some of my family members to celebrate mm. both of those. And uh, the Leeshuk one, they didn't do on-field recognition. Mm. But for the alumni one, they did do on-field recognition, and I brought in this photo of my uh, middle daughter and her husband flew in from Texas mm-hmm. to be at the game, to see me on the big old jumbotron up there. 
some of my students actually saw me on the jumbotron during the game and uh, emailed me afterward. And uh, my uh, daughter and son-in-law did the classic kinds mm -hmm. of things, hang around of Sanford. Sanford Hall, etc. <laughs> and then for the alumni award. Uh, I'm sorry, for the Leeshuk Award, that was uh, an opportunity to bring in more family members. Mm -hmm. And so I actually had oh. my uh, oldest daughter and their son and her, uh, my son-in-law there. They came to Auburn and got a chance to see some of the animal collections and just kind of tour around campus, etc. And so it was great to be recognized during those awards and also to have the opportunity to share that with my family. So mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a great experience. Both of those were. So with the alumni award being getting the on-field recognition, uh, you mentioned some of your students saw you on the jumbotron. But what yeah, what was that, that was like? Yeah, it was really terrific because it had been the second football game I'd attended in person here at Auburn, um, <laughs> and it still is the last football game I attended. It's much more <laughs> it's much more relaxing to be able to sit in an armchair. Or, you know, oh, I agree. Like yeah, and I watch agree. it on. on, on I've I've TV. been to a lot of football games because I I do some side work with the band and stuff, so I tend to go to a lot of football games and it's still it's a lot of times much nicer just to sit back in your chair at home you know have a bathroom readily available yeah there you go yeah <laughs> during the during the early games of course it can be really really warm right and so uh, in air-conditioned comfort can be uh, that right can be, that can be very nice I've, I've thought if you go to the games the 11 o'clock game is not preferred if you watch it at home you like the 11 o'clock game <laughs> <laughs> so during your time teaching, uh, as well as being recognized for these awards, uh, one thing that you've kind of stressed to students is about plant blindness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, plant blindness. So, so actually I was brought to Auburn in order to teach a class in plant ecology. And so most of the students in that class are actually ma majors in wildlife. And if you're a major in wildlife, the reason you're a major in wildlife is that you like animals mm -hmm. and you don't really appreciate plants as much. So being a botanist and uh, having had the opportunity to think a lot about plants and appreciate plants, one of the things that I like to stress to the class is that uh, a lot of people have what is technically termed plant blindness in which they don't appreciate plants as being living things even, or uh, even worse, that they're not interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it turns out that's a, a, a big phenomenon or it's an important phenomenon that's widespread in our society. A lot of people don't really appreciate plants and recognize that they have lives and they do interesting things. They operate at a different time scale than we do, of course, but when you actually get a chance to think about them and get exposed to them, you can find it, you can appreciate the things that they do. And right. so I try to get my class to recognize that they may be plant blind, and that one of our goals in class is to solve that by getting them to meet plants. I call them our plant friends, get to know their names, get to know their features, get to know things about their lives. And so I've stressed the plant blindness thing uh, during the whole time I've taught that plant ecology class. I've taught that now for 30 years. And uh, I think some of the students have become not plant blind. Sometimes uh, some of the former students were friends on Facebook or maybe on email. They'll send me a, a picture of a plant and either ask what it was or say, hey, Dr. Boyd, we talked about this plant in plant ecology. And I, I got out here to the Sonoran Desert, and here's a saguaro cactus. Hey, awesome, war eagle. Right. <laughs> so, so that's been a pretty nice recognition of how plant blindness can be mm -hmm. solved, I guess, yeah. with a little bit of effort. 
I, since I've been working in COSAM, especially in the past maybe 10 years, I've really started to have a, a bigger appreciation for both wildlife and plants and things that you normally wouldn't consider. And that's just being around it all the time has, has helped with that. And with plants, for instance, you think about certain things like sweet gum trees. People are like just irritated by sweet gum trees, but they, they actually have, you could say they have uses, um, but they're actually, you know, things you wouldn't think about being beneficial are beneficial in ways you wouldn't have thought about. And I know I didn't do that for a while. So I guess I was kind of plant blind, but you know, just being around it has, has made it better for me. Yeah, the nice thing about being in a college of sciences and math is that you get exposed to scientists who know about all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so you build an appreciation for things that are outside your sphere of influence. Right now I'm interested in watching the planets in the morning and night skies because mm -hmm. you can see five planets during the day now. Right. And that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. So. Yeah. I know I've just passed last night I was looking up in the sky and I was like, not exactly sure what planet that is, but I'm fairly certain that is a planet right there. You, you know? see Mars? Was it? I've seen Mars a yeah, few Mars times. Mars is yeah. really high in the mm -hmm. sky at night, reddish, and mm -hmm. it's really bright right now. So. I know it was it was the closest back a week or so ago. Yeah, I think, yeah. It reached they, a, they got a photo of it with the uh, telescope on top of on Leech. On top of Leech, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's I saw good. that. Huh? That night I was looking up in the sky going, there it is. There it is, but it doesn't look like it did in the photo. Right, it's a little smaller. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so along with recognitions, there is one, at least one other exciting thing uh, mm -hmm. that you've been, I guess I could say recognized for, and I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly. I'm going to see if I can. Okay. Melanotrichus boidi. Well, we usually say melanotrichus. Melanotrichus. Boy, die. Okay. I was close. Yeah, you were very close. It was so very good. that's an insect that you've been, that's been named after you. Correct. Um, and you found it while researching in California? Yes. So there's a, there's a long story with that because we have to tie that into serpentine, mm. which I presume we're going to talk about in a little while. Right. That's also in here. So yeah, we yeah. Can, we can tie that all together okay, now if let, you want. We could start that by uh, looking at our little shelf here and looking at this nice serpentine rock. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is a, a kind of rock that is really high in magnesium, low in calcium, high in some heavy metals. And when it becomes soil, it becomes a soil that is difficult for a lot of plants to grow in just mm -hmm. because of the chemical imbalances in it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of plants that grow in serpentine soils have to uh, have adaptations that allow them to grow in these soil types. And sometimes when you have those adaptations, it means you don't compete well off of serpentine soils. Hmm. So a lot of plants found on serpentine are what, they, what we call serpentine endemics. They only grow on serpentine soils. And uh, so, so uh, botanists have gotten interested in that a lot about what does it mean to be a serpentine endemic and what adaptations do you need. And a number of plants that grow on serpentine are rare because serpentine might be a rare kind of rock. Right. And so the plants are rare, and so that gives a conservation angle to that. So it turns out uh, there are some plants that grow on these rocks that do an interesting thing called hyperaccumulation. Hmm. So I mentioned that there's a lot of nickel in those rocks. Nickel is toxic to organisms in general. It's not really required for metabolism. 
And uh, so if it's a heavy metal. If you get a lot of it, it can be a challenge. So, uh, But there are some plants that grow on serpentine soils that have uh, adapted to actually take up that nickel and put it in their tissues at concentrations that are maybe a thousand times greater than a regular plant would. Oh, wow. So it's, yeah, they're hyper-accumulating that nickel. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, my lab and my students and I have been looking at for the last 30 years is uh, why plants might do that in terms of what ecological effects that might have on other organisms. And one of the things you might think of is that if you're taking something toxic into your tissues, maybe you're doing that to protect yourself from mm -hmm. your enemies. And so uh, we've done a number of experiments that show that there's something what we call elemental defense, which is where you take elements out of the soil, concentrate them in your tissues, and that will actually poison enemies that are not adapted to that kind of uh, diet. Mm -hmm. And so a, a lot of unadapted animals when given hyperaccumulator tissues will either refuse to feed on them or will die if they have no other choice than to eat them. So it's a defense. Right. But in nature we find that, as they say, life finds a way. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so there's always a counter adaptation to a defense. And so there are some insects out there that are adapted to live on these high nickel plants. And so we were doing a study in California on a nickel hyperaccumulator that's endemic to California serpentines. So it's only found on California serpentines. And we kept finding this little greenish bug that uh, my grad student at the time, uh, Michael Wall, called Greeny Meeny. <laughs> he was really interested in entomology and he was doing a lot of the field work for his master's thesis out there. Mm -hmm. Kept finding this Greeny Meeny on almost every site that we found the plant. And... Uh, he sent it off to an expert in Canada, and it turns out the Canadian expert said, this is an undescribed species of this bug. And so they kindly decided to name it after me, uh, which is why it's called Melanotrichus boydi. And the neat thing about the bug is that it actually has a lot of nickel in its tissues, hmm. so it's able to withstand the nickel in its diet and allow it to build up in its body. So it's got uh, 800 parts per million on a dry weight basis of nickel, hmm. which is... Um, what I call a high nickel insect. There's about 20 or so high nickel insects known f across the world on serpentine uh, growing plants. And Melanotrichus boydi was one of the first. And actually, uh, back here, I have a drawing that was done by one of my students of Melanotrichus boydi, a very talented student who was studying art. And then Melanotrichus boydi also got the cover of Insect Science. Oh, wow. On a, uh, an issue in 2000. And Nine, I think it was. So, it's been fun to have an insect named after you when you're a botanist because yeah. that's pretty unusual. Yeah, I was going to say you're you're not researching insects, yet you have an insect named after you. Well, we actually <laughs> slid into some research right. with insects, but uh, <laughs> kind of the back door through the plants. So. Right. On a slightly different note, in 2019, you became the associate dean for academic affairs. What was your first year like? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first year started out pretty normally, shall we say. Right. Uh, so it's been a, coming to a job like this is is uh, is a growing opportunity. Simply because I came out of biological sciences, there's five departments in COSAM, and so I knew a lot about my home department, but I didn't know a lot about all the other departments in COSAM mm -hmm. and uh, what student services does and what development does and just all the different units in COSAM. So I had to learn a lot about that uh, during the first. 
I guess, six or seven months. I started in July. And then, of course, in March, everything became very interesting. And right. after that, it's been kind of like hang on for the wild ride and <laughs> try to keep everything going. And, uh, boy, it's just been, it's been a major challenge. But the good news is that we have a lot of great people in COSAM and mm-hmm. staff and faculty and students. And so one of the rewarding things about the job is that I get to work with a lot of great people to solve problems and to try and help them do what they do. And so I think that's kind of the best thing about becoming associate dean mm-hmm. is that I'm finding that I get to work with even more great people and I get to help folks solve problems. And so it's been a right. rewarding job. And hopefully things will become more normal at some point. Right. Hopefully so. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully soon. So about working with great people, one of, one of the parts of your job is advising the COSAM leaders. Tell us a little bit about that group. So the COSAM leaders are a group of men and women who are, I would say they're exemplary students. So they are high performing academically, they're socially conscious and uh, basically fans of COSAM and appreciate COSAM and what COSAM has done. And what they do is basically uh, be sort of like ambassadors for COSAM. they usually have worked with development at events where we have uh, alumni, etc., and they actually uh, are the face of COSAM for those things, the student reps. Uh, since the COVID crisis has happened, they've gotten a uh, important function in terms of helping with tours. They've been working with uh, people who are doing virtual tours now and virtual student panels for recruitment. And so they're still the face of COSAM to our our students and helping with uh, recruiting and with our student services office. But their their roles have changed too now in this time. But the nice Mm -hmm. thing about those students is that, as I mentioned, they're high-performing students. Uh, They have high ambitions for getting into professional schools or graduate schools. And even in just the year that I've been here, Last year's students, for example, have gotten placed in some very prestigious places, and it's just exciting to be able to see how their careers and their further education is going to be developing over the next few years, and to have seen them launch from Auburn into those various kinds of next steps. And I'm sure that when they finish, if I'm still around here at Auburn, they'll be coming back and we'll be able to Uh, share their experiences and the nice thing about that as well is that when students go on and get placed into careers they often come back and want to give back to COSAM and mentor or advise and provide resources Mm -hmm. for COSAM so it's a it's a great nice little circle of life that I'm getting to see by working with the leaders in this role as sort of their faculty advisor. So what have you enjoyed the most so far about working with the leaders and just being associate dean in general? I think the most is is what I was saying in terms of making connections with really talented people who are dedicated to education at Auburn. Uh, it's just been a it's just been a joy to be able to work with those folks and to help them and interact with them and try to solve problems I guess. We talked a little bit about students with the COSAM leaders and with working with student services. Um, is there any advice that you would give to maybe incoming students that would that could help them succeed in COSAM? Well, you mentioned student services, and I think they're a key part of a student's educational journey. Um, the academic advisors there are highly trained, have a lot of experience. They know the system and what students need to do. 
and they're a great resource for students when they need assistance. I always ask, tell students if I hear of difficulties that one of the first things you should do is simply talk to your advisor and get their advice and their help. Um, the other thing that Student Services does, of course, is that they have ways of helping students beyond just the advisors. We have peer mentors uh, who basically, or peer advisors, who can help advise students and give them the sort of student view of some of the things that students need to do. The website over there at Student Services also is great because there's tons of information about just how to be a student mm -hmm. and how to work on your study skills and student skills and contacting faculty and connections to other offices at the university that provide help for uh, students. So I'd say the primary thing students should do is contact student services and work with their advisor when they have any problems, issues, or difficulties. That's basically a great first step. Well, I'm going to ask you a very hard question now mm. because we're going to whittle it down to one thing. And it's always hard to, to just think of one thing. At least it is for me. But if there was just one thing that you could tell students for them to remember, what would it be? How about live the creed? Mm. That's a good I, one. By connecting to the creed, I mean, uh, the nice thing about the creed is that it covers a lot of ground. Right. Uh, of a lot of important things that I think everybody should keep in mind about being a responsible and valuable person to society. And so I guess by covering all those things by the little live the creed idea, then I would say live the creed. So earlier when we were talking about the awards that you've received, you mentioned be being able to bring in family, and you mentioned having grandchildren in Texas and California. Um, do, have you been encouraging them to per just to learn about science and, and maybe even eventually pursue a career in science? Well, I'm, I'm not, they're not at the stage for careers yet, and for <laughs> career advice, but interest in science, yes. And so I have brought in a few photos of the grandkids. Uh, this is my eldest granddaughter with a, with a butterfly in Texas, so it's not all about plants, uh, sometimes animals. All life is good, or all mm -hmm. science is good. Uh, this is my eldest granddaughter when I brought her some leaves, fall leaves, mm -hmm. of several different kinds of plants, and so she has a little collection there in which she actually wrote the type of leaf down there on that. Um, this is my eldest grandson in California. He's wearing some Auburn gear, mm. Auburn fan. He's got a little plant there that he's showing. And then my youngest granddaughter in California with another plant that we picked on a walk. So yeah, I, I do definitely try to engage the kids with with science as much as possible. Um, as a grandparent or a parent, you want to share your passions right. with your kids or your grandkids. And so every opportunity I get, I try to work these things in. They are not going to be plant blind, Philip. Well, that's good. That's good. That'll be uh, leading a new generation to be not plant blind. It'll be part of my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Boyd. Well, thank you, Philip. I've enjoyed talking to you and uh, War Eagle. War Eagle. War Eagle.